A new problem has emerged for the long-troubled F-35 Joint Strike Fighter program. It concerns spare parts and who accounts for them. Are they government-furnished parts or should they be accounted for under a contract? The Joint F-35 program office and its suppliers don't always see eye-to-eye on this, with the result that millions of dollars' worth of parts seemingly vaporize. We get the details from the Director of Financial Management and Assurance Issues at the Government Accountability Office, Kristen Koselek. Ms. Koselek, good to have you back. Thanks for having me, Tom. Yeah, so this is not really a problem of, you know, the airframe breaks or the software is no good. We've had all that in the engines. But this is the way parts are accounted for, and it seems like a really arcane issue, and yet tens of millions of dollars are at stake. Tell us what's going on. Right, Tom. So like you said, we did look at this as part of our audit of the U.S. government financial statements, and this is how the problem came to our attention, the accounting for it. But when we started looking at it, there can be operational issues related to this as well. Keeping track of inventory and knowing where your spare parts are is critical to maintaining the aircraft in an effective and efficient way. Knowing where they are, how many you have, where they are located is really important for the operation of this aircraft being run efficiently. As I'm sure you've talked about before, it's an extremely expensive program. And so making sure the dollars are well used, you're not buying more than you need, but you are absolutely having what you need and having that information available to management on a timely basis so they can make really important decisions about what they need where it is, is critical. And by the way, when you talk about spare parts, that can be like an engine or a landing gear, not just a knob on a radio in the cockpit. Correct. I mean, it could be a bolt, it could be a fastener, but it could be an engine part, it could be a tire, it could be landing gear. So these are pretty important parts to the aircraft. And like I said, knowing where they are, having management have the ability to know where those things are and being able to make good informed decisions about what you need when you need it is important to the operations of this program. So what is the issue then for how they're accounted for and where the spare parts are? So as you mentioned, there is some disagreement, I guess, if you will, about how the parts should be accounted for. There are systems in place for contractors to report to the government the assets that they hold. And then also, you know, if there are losses or if the contractor determines there are excess items, obsolete items, you know, if excess could be used somewhere else, you'd want that to be reported so that those things could be used elsewhere. And like I said, you know, having efficient management of all government assets, making sure they're protected. So by not agreeing on if these are government furnished property, they're not being entered into those systems. And so they are kind of just in this limbo land of they're not in the government records and they're not in the contractor records. And so nobody has clear oversight as to where they are. It almost takes you back to the old-fashioned days of retail when stores would close to do a physical inspection of the shelves is the only way they could get an accurate inventory. It sounds like this is the case here almost. Absolutely. And and so the F-35 Joint Program Office has started that process of trying to go out and count everything. But going back in time and kind of trying to recreate this list is extremely time consuming. And so I think that's one of the difficulties they're running into is that because this has not been resolved from the beginning, trying to play catch up and now do that count, get everything into a system is not easy by any stretch of the imagination. These parts are very numerous and located all over the world. So going through that process is taking quite a bit of time. Wow. We're speaking with Kristen Koselek. She's Director of Financial Management and Assurance Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And let's just take the example of 
the engines. They're made by Pratt & Whitney, and they blow, and they need to be replaced regularly on these jets, and they're kind of under high pressure. So what does the government expect for an inventory system? I mean, once it is acquired for placing in government stockpiles, it is then, I guess you could say, government-furnished, but it was bought from a contractor. So who is supposed to deliver these parts to where, and what is the expectation of the Defense Department as to who should account for where they are? Well, there are two different types of equipment, like you mentioned. In some cases, the government initially acquires the property and then provides it to the contractor. But in other cases, the contractor acquires the property and then ultimately it becomes government property. And so there are, like I said, mechanisms in place where if it's in a contractor system, there are contract oversight offices within the Department of Defense that have routine processes for evaluating the contractor systems that are being maintained, making sure that the contractors have proper internal controls to maintain security for the parts and things like that. And the problem is when these types of spare parts are not going into those systems that are in place, are not going through those normal channels, that's where they're losing some of this oversight. When they're not getting entered in, when there's disagreement about what types of assets these are, like I said, they're kind of falling through the cracks and not ending up in any of those systems to allow the government to maintain the accountability that has been established in most cases. And there's a little twist here because in some circumstances, contractors have the right or the contractual obligation to do the installation of the spare parts. So therefore, even though they might have made them, they might have already sold them to the government and then the term government furnished means furnished to the contractor. So they kind of go around in a circle in that sense. Absolutely right. And many of these contracts are written that there is the expectation that the contractor holds this equipment. So there's really nothing wrong with that or that in it itself is not problematic. But making sure that these accountability mechanisms and oversight mechanisms are in place, you know, just to have these checks and balances in place to ensure, like I said, that government assets are being protected, taxpayer dollars are being used as the government thinks they are being used, and everybody kind of knows where everything is, everybody's on the same page so that the program can run efficiently, effectively, is really really what's potentially at risk here. But in the meantime, you found some pretty expensive examples of where it hasn't been efficient and where things have gone unaccounted for, let's say, even though they might actually exist somewhere on a shelf. Absolutely. Like I said, there are processes in place where if a contractor would determine, for example, that they have some excess parts or parts that are obsolete and can no longer be used for the F-35, let's say, but could potentially be used for another contract, could potentially be used for another part of the government. We did find instances where these parts have been identified by the contractor but are not being reported back to the government. So there is a potential risk that, you know, some of these parts could be used elsewhere, but instead, you know, additional parts are being purchased when maybe that's not necessary because these parts could be reused elsewhere. Or if there are excess, you know, perhaps we are paying for storage costs that we don't need. We could be getting rid of these. We could be freeing up storage space. So there is a risk that there's some additional expenditures being incurred because of the lack of reliable data readily available for management to be making these decisions. Well, in one case, some parts have been unaccounted for for five years. There's a million of them. They're worth more than $85 million. This is the kind of thing you're seeing. Absolutely. Right. It's big numbers of parts. It's big dollars that you know are potentially at risk here that could be used for other things that could be used for other purposes. And so that's really what we're talking about is the potential mismanagement of resources given this lack of oversight. Any other good examples you came across? Big dollars? 
you know, yeah, like you said, there were instances where we found, you know, thousands of parts that the contractor had reported as lost. And so when they go through the normal channels, the government then has the opportunity to assess the reason for that loss and then determine who is liable for paying for those parts. You know, was it some lack of controls on the government? Was a lack of controls on the contractor? Who's liable for paying for that loss? And without having timely reporting of that, you know, the government could be incurring those liabilities and losses that really should be borne by others. Yeah, 34 actuator doors with a total cost of $3.2 million that were lost. How do you lose an actuator door? I don't know what that is exactly. It could be as big as a refrigerator door. It could be as small as a jewelry box door, I guess, on a F-35, but 34 of them are gone. Right. Absolutely. And that's the concern. And without having this oversight as to understanding why that happened, exactly like you said, you know, why are these things happening? Could we be putting some additional controls in place so it doesn't happen again? It's something you don't want to continue to be repeated. And that's why there are these processes in place for the government to be able to provide some oversight, do some investigating, understand what's going on, so that hopefully in the future you wouldn't have these problems happening again. And without this information and understanding and the timely looking into that, you know, the longer time goes by, if this has, you know, occurred five years ago, the understanding what happened and being able to identify root causes, put some corrective actions in place, the more time passes, that becomes excessively difficult to do. And so, in the next five years, you could have lost 34 more and not even know it. Yikes. So you've got four recommendations basically for the acquisition and sustainment function at the Undersecretary of Defense to fix all of this. Did they pretty much agree with them? They did concur with all the recommendations, which is wonderful. They have mentioned in their comment letter that they provided with their report, you know, steps they do plan to take to try to uh, put additional procedures in place, corrective actions in place. So, so that's very encouraging. Kristen Kosalek is Director of Financial Management and Assurance Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. 
You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is 
brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again.
And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.